Turn to Luke chapter 10. Today we're going to look at one of the most familiar stories in the Bible or actually in Western literature. Uh, The story that Jesus told that's become known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, Many of his fellow Jews would not have liked that title or would not have understood that title since they believed that the only Good Samaritan was a dead Samaritan. Let me give you a two-minute history lesson to serve as a backdrop for this text. 722 B.C., Assyria invaded... Syria is part now of what was the Assyrian Empire. Violent then is now. Assyria invaded and conquered northern Israel and then deported tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Israelites to Medea. At the same time, they imported huge numbers of people from the surrounding nations into Israel. So they basically transplanted the population. The Jewish people who remained in country eventually intermarried with these foreigners, which was something that the full-blooded Jews living in the South considered unforgivable. The people who comprised this mixed ethnicity nation in the North became known as the Samaritans. More than a century later, the Jews in the South were also conquered, this time by Babylon, and also deported, many thousands and perhaps hundreds of thousands. But neither those who remained in country or those who were exiled ever married other races, and they despised the people in the North who had. When the deported Jews returned to their land 70 years later after the exile, the first thing they did was to rebuild the temple. The Samaritans from the North offered to help, but were immediately and ungraciously repulsed, and relationships between those two people were bitter ever after. In the years that followed, the Samaritans, the people in the North, the mixed blood people, basically rewrote history, rewrote the Jewish Bible. They claimed that Abraham had offered Isaac on Mount Gerizim in the heart of Samaria and not on Mount Moriah. They said that the historic meeting between Abraham and Melchizedek took place on Mount Gerizim and that it was on Gerizim that Israel first entered into the promised land. Everything important that ever happened happened on Gerizim. This historical revisionism was meant to give legitimacy to a temple that the Samaritans had built to the Lord on Mount Gerizim. If you read John chapter 4 with this background in mind, you'll get a new look at John chapter 4 and the Samaritan woman. But the Jews in the southern kingdom, these full-blooded Jews in the southern kingdom, were so outraged that these mongrel Samaritans would build a temple to the Lord God of Israel that they sent a team of terrorists into the country to burn it down. The Samaritans retaliated by sneaking into the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and slaughtering a pig there on the altar to make it ceremonially unclean right before a high feast. And so 400 years later, as Jesus is speaking in our text, this conflict still smoldered. And it was in this environment that Jesus told the story of the good, we should say the godly, Samaritan. Now, verse 25, let's read. 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. 
You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. I, I can just see Jesus saying this and like turning. That's the right answer. Good job. And so do it. You love your neighbor yourself. Do this and you live. But as Jesus turns, the teacher of the law says, hey, 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 wait a minute. He, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one that had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, <clears throat> do you think the expert in the law had a sinister motive behind this question? In Matthew's gospel, it certainly appears that way. Matthew records an attempt by some Sadducees to publicly humiliate Jesus. And when that failed, he tells us, the Pharisees got together as if to plan their own attack. And it was then that this law expert stood up to test, the word could, is often translated tempt, Jesus. Clearly, he didn't ask this question because he was hungry to know the truth. And since it wasn't an answer he was looking for, Jesus didn't give him one. I think that same thing happens to us sometimes. Why God? Why God? We're not really looking for an answer, and he doesn't give us one. But Jesus gave him another question. What's written in the law? How do you read it? It didn't take long to see, for Jesus, to see that this guy would rather talk than listen. That he felt the need to prove to everyone the breadth and depth of his biblical knowledge. So Jesus, who never felt that need, simply turned the question around and gave this expert a platform from which to display his knowledge. What's written in the law that you know so well and you love so much? How do you read it? Well, Luke gives the man's answer in verse 27. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. That's Deuteronomy 6. And love your neighbors yourself. That's Leviticus 19. Now, this guy really was an expert. His answer is spot on. According to Mark's gospel, Jesus considered it to be wise. And Luke tells us that Jesus gave him an A on the quiz. You've answered correctly. Now, I want to pause just a moment so that we can admire the wisdom of Jesus. Remember how this dialogue started off with an expert in the law, a teacher, testing Jesus. But without him understanding how it happened, Jesus has become the teacher and the expert in the law has become the student who's taking the test. And he passed with flying colors. To inherit eternal life, he says, oh, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbors yourself. That's all. That's all you have to do. But of course, talking about it and doing it are different things. 
And Jesus' emphasis is on doing it, not talking about it. Luke narrates this scene in such a way as to place emphasis on the word doing. It's interesting to read it in Greek. The law expert asks, what must I do? Jesus answers, do this. Tells his story and then says, again, do this. Do likewise. So I think we have to ask, does this text teach that we can gain eternal life by doing religious works toward God and good works towards our fellow man? And I think the answer is no. That idea not only contradicts other biblical teaching, it contradicts teaching from Jesus himself and is theologically suspect, to say the least. Besides that, the love of God that Jesus is affirming and the love of man is more than something you do. It's an attitude. It's a character quality. It's a state of being. Now, it issues in 10,000 works towards God and man and yet is more than all of them. The way a reservoir issues from a thousand taps and a thousand kitchens, but is more than the water that comes out of all of them. This law export could perform religious rituals toward God and good deeds toward his neighbor unceasingly and mark them off his list every day and still not be the loving person that God was looking for. Now, I read this and it seems to me that this guy has a problem that many of us share. He could give right answers to theological questions and talk enthusiastically about spiritual issues, but he wasn't living the truth that he talked. He framed his words so that he appeared to be fulfilling those two commands, but it was talk, that's all. For him, religion's like the weather. It's something everybody talks about, but nobody can do anything about And so with surgical precision, Jesus cuts right to the heart of the matter. Look, I'm going to give you an A on your report card. You got the right answer. That's very good. Now go do it. We in the conservative evangelical branch of the church need to hear what Jesus is saying. We can get really picky about using all the right words and making sure that our doctrinal T's are crossed and I's are dotted. And you know what? We should cross our T's and dot our I's because if we get our doctrine wrong, it will be really hard to get our lives right. We need to work at getting doctrine right. We should go to Sunday school. We should read books. But we must never, ever think that we can substitute right doctrine for life. And that, I'm afraid, is what this law expert was in danger of doing, and it's a danger that we run as well. Jesus didn't come that we might have doctrine and have it more abundantly. He came that we might have life. The good old Scott, George MacDonald, put it this way. God is looking for someone who will do the will of God, not understand it, not care about it, not theorize it, but do it. If you argue, but we're saved by faith, not by works. No one's disagreeing with you, least of all Jesus. We are saved by faith, but holding a thing with the intellect is not faith. A man's real belief is that by which he lives.
And maybe the law expert really believed that he could talk his way into salvation. If that were so, he would be one of a great company of people who have placed more faith in the power of their own words than in the word of the powerful God. Look at verse 29. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Yet another question for which this guy doesn't really want an answer. And what trouble we get into when we try to justify ourselves, as if that were possible. It's not. We're justified, both in the broadest sense that our existence on earth is validated, and in the narrower sense that we are declared not guilty before God, because we have faith in Jesus Christ. But when we who believe in Jesus go on and on, trying to justify ourselves, as many of us do, I'm convinced it's a major problem in my life and in most of ours. We're like someone who's inherited a vast estate but's trying to eke out a living by selling worthless trifles on eBay. Now, I want you to note carefully the question that the law expert asked. Who is my neighbor? Tell me, who is this neighbor that I have to love? I don't think he was asking that question because he wanted to hurry out and love his neighbor. I think he was asking that question because he wanted to identify all the people who didn't qualify as his neighbor and whom he therefore didn't need to love. He wanted to narrow the field of his neighbors to a manageable degree so that he could say, I do that. Yeah, I do that. I I love my neighbor. Verse 30. And I like the Greek of verse 30. It could be translated, Jesus taking him up, taking him up on his question, answered, I like this. Everything this law expert has done so far has played right into the hands of Jesus. And you know what? Everything you do and I do and everyone else does plays right into his hand, and thank God for that. The law expert wanted to reduce the field. He wanted to shrink the neighborhood of God's love until it was just a block or two of people who looked and talked and acted just like he did. But in the Gospel of Luke, we keep seeing Jesus extending the boundaries of God's neighborhood. His love reached, and so our love must reach to the least, the last, and the lost. God's neighborhood is cosmic in proportion. There's room in his neighborhood for, as we saw last week, women and children and tax collectors and Gentiles and lepers and, yes, even Samaritans. That is not at all, in any way, shape, or form, what the law expert had been taught to believe. He thought that God's neighborhood had no trespassing, keep-out signs posted everywhere. He lived in a world where it is okay to despise people, where it's even godly to despise people. He was conditioned to think, like the writer of the apocryphal book of Sirach, where the teacher says, when you do good, Know to whom you're doing it. Do good to the godly man. Give to the godly man, but don't help a sinner. Do not give to the ungodly. Hold back your bread. Don't give it to him. Give to the good, but don't help the sinner. The law expert's neighborhood was home to priests and Levites and good religious people. There weren't any tax collectors living there. And no prostitutes or Gentiles were there either. 
There were some poor people, but they came and went just to receive alms. And there were certainly no Samaritans. As far as this law expert was concerned, he was completely justified in despising Samaritans. So who does Jesus make the hero of his story? Look at verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When Jesus said the man was going down, his hearers would have pictured that quite literally. Jerusalem sits at an altitude of 2,500 feet above sea level. Sea level. Jericho at about 800 feet below sea level, and there's only 15 miles between the two. So it's an arduous walk even today with hiking shoes and backpacks and water bottles. But it was even worse in the first century, and all the more so because the road was a favorite haunt of robbers. He fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Robbers came out of nowhere. The Greek text graphically says they fell upon him. They fell upon this traveler, stripped him of his clothes, which would have removed any indication of his social standing and ethnicity. Beat him and left him half dead. Verse 31, a priest happened to be going down the same road, or as the Greek has it, by coincidence or by chance, a priest was going down that road. You know, it's often not the formal or planned events in life that reveal our character, but it's the coincidences that show us who we really are. The priest saw the half-dead man and walked by on the other side of the road. Next came a Levite, another religious professional, who did the same thing. In fact, in Greek, we have this neat order repeated. He came, he saw, and he passed by on the opposite side. Jesus gives absolutely no explanation for the behavior of these religious professionals. Some scholars argue that we should understand these religious leaders who are avoiding the ceremonial uncleanness that comes from contact with a dead body. Can you get me down to that Darth Vader voice? I would like that really well. <laughs> Other scholars think that we should understand that, a little bit lower, <laughs> That, this was, that these men thought this might be a trap set by the same robbers who were waiting for some other fool to stop. But Jesus doesn't tell us why these men did what they did. And the reality is that some people spend their entire lives passing by on the other side of the road, on the safe side. Always stay on the safe side. Now, if this story seems far-fetched to you, Consider this. In 2006, a guy named David Sharp, 34 years old from Cleveland, Ohio, uh, an engineer, managed to reach the summit of Mount Everest on his own without a guide or a climbing team. On his way back down, 984 feet from the top, he ran out of oxygen. As he lay dying, 40 other climbers walked right by him, having forked out big bucks to climb Mount Everest, and not one of them stopped or offered to share his oxygen. And David Sharp froze to death as a crowd of people streamed by. It seems odd to us, but the law expert may have argued that the priest and Levite did the right thing by leaving the half-dead man lying on the side of the road. Remember Sarek? When you do good, know to whom you're doing it. How could they know to whom they were doing it? The man was stripped of his clothes. They didn't know if he was a rich man or a slave a Jew or a Gentile. Sirach also said, don't help the sinner. Don't help the sinner. How could they know whether this man was a sinner or not? 
For all they knew, he might be a tax collector or some pagan idol worshiper. Better to pass by on the other side of the road, the safe side. In verse 33, we have the same progression. The Samaritan came, he saw, but he didn't pass by. Instead, the text says, seeing he was filled with compassion. Doesn't that sound just like the God Luke has been telling us about? The God who shows mercy on those who fear him? And doesn't that sound just like the Jesus that Luke has been describing to us? In fact, the word that he uses to describe the Samaritan's compassion is the same word that he used to describe Jesus back in chapter 7. In crossing the road and giving himself to someone in need, the Samaritan was imitating God himself, for God in Christ crossed a very wide road to give himself to us in our need. The Samaritan bound up the man's wounds, We get the word trauma, by the way, from the Greek word that's used here. He poured on oil and wine to disinfect and soothe the wounds and then took him to an inn. I'll just stop there for a second. Inns in the Middle East in the first century were very unpleasant places. Prostitutes plied their trade there, as did thieves and bandits. The accommodations at a first century inn were uncomfortable. It was something like a horse stall with straw to sleep on, and that was it. And the breakfast room was an open courtyard where the animals were fed. If in the first century you were given the choice between staying in the best five-star inn in Israel or the one-room house of your cousin's husband's grandma, whom you'd never met, you would choose grandma every time. She at least wouldn't rob you. But the Samaritan had no choice, so he gave the innkeeper his credit card. He told him he'd settle up for anything when he came back. Now look at Jesus' question in verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Did you notice how Jesus turned the law expert's question on its head? He asked, who's a neighbor to me? Jesus asked, to whom are you a neighbor? See, Jesus understood something that the law expert had not yet grasped, that God's neighborhood is big. He lets everyone in. He, like Mr. Rogers, sings over and over again, won't you be my neighbor? Won't you be my neighbor? The law expert wanted to justify himself by keeping the neighborhood and so his responsibility to his neighbors very small. But Jesus wanted to justify the Samaritan and the Gentile and the beggar and the woman and the kids by bringing them all into his neighborhood and introducing them to his father. When the law expert answered, and and I can't read this without getting the feeling that he just couldn't bring himself to say the Samaritan. So instead he replies, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus had turned the tables completely on this guy and he looked him in the eye and he said, go and do likewise. Go and be a neighbor to others. Go be a child of God, an heir of life who follows in his father's footsteps. Now, there are a couple of things still to be said, lest we misunderstand. You cannot become a child of God by legalistically doing loving things for other people, no matter how many times you do it. But if you become a child of God through faith in Jesus, your love for other people will grow more and more. It will be a miracle. And this needs to be said, too. 
In our text, you probably noticed Jesus spent more time talking about love for neighbor than love for God. But that's not because love for neighbor is more important, but because that was the question the law expert asked. As important as love for neighbor is, it can never take the place of love for God. In fact, I will never love my neighbor like I could until I love my God like I should. C.S. Lewis put it this way in a letter to a correspondent. When I've learned to love God better than my earthly dearest, I shall love my earthly dearest better than I do now. Insofar as I learn to love my earthly dearest at the expense of God and instead of God, I shall be moving toward the state in which I shall not love my earthly dearest at all. When first things are put first, second things are not suppressed, but increased. Now, one last thing. Okay, I want to get personal now. If you have no trespassing signs all over your neighborhood, take them down and put up welcome signs in their place. Now, maybe you think, oh, I can't do that. If I do that, if I welcome people into my neighborhood, into my life, then they're going to think it's okay to do the bad things they do. They'll be content to stay in their sins. You know what? If that's what's worrying you, I urge you to contemplate the example of Jesus. No one ever got the idea that they could just sit around in their sins by hanging out in Jesus' neighborhood. The people you're worried about need Jesus, and how will you ever be able to introduce them to him if you won't let them in? Let them in. Let's pray. God, I pray that at Lockwood Church, you'll help us not to post no trespassing, keep out signs. But may we be signs that say to people, welcome. And Lord, we'll trust you with them. Make our whole lives a welcome sign. For Jesus' sake, amen.